Disclaimer. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of the New American Magazine. They're submitted for your entertainment and consideration. You should consult your doctor before considering expending too much strenuous energy on these controversial subjects. If you don't have medical authorization, consider this invitation as your permission slip for independent thought. This is Under the Iceberg, hosted by Daniel Natal, co-hosted by investigative researcher Jenny Sulcox and publisher for The New American Magazine, Dennis Barron. Also joining the panel is the ever-brilliant and ever-original Mysterious Sid. Tonight's episode revolves around the conspiracy theory of Q and its possible origins in Russia's Operation Trust from 1921. Chapter 1. The Premise. The Q phenomenon was known for many phrases, trust the plan, where we go one, we go all, the Great Awakening. But one of its most enlightening slogans was, the future proves the past. Why this is interesting is that in 1921 in Russia, there was a psyop run by the Bolsheviks to smoke out anti-communists by pretending to have secret white hats working within the government to reinstitute freedom. It was called Operation Trust. Yes, as in trust the plan. According to Wikipedia, Operation Trust was a counterintelligence operation of the State Political Directorate, GPU, of the Soviet Union. The operation, which was set up by the GPU's predecessor, Cheka, ran from 1921 to 1926 and set up a fake anti-Bolshevik resistance organization, Monarchist Union of Central Russia, in order to help the OGPU identify real monarchists and anti-Bolsheviks. In 2002, 14 years before Trump ever ran for political office, The Guardian in England ran a story called To Trap a Spy. It begins, Boris Goods is 100 years old. But sitting in his Moscow flat, the former Soviet agent still clearly remembers the day in 1925 when he helped lure Britain's master spy Sidney Riley to imprisonment and execution. For those who don't know, Sidney Riley was one of the inspirations Ian Fleming used when he created James Bond. Riley was a double agent, and Riley wasn't his real name. When you read his bio, you realize how wily he was. Quote, the true details about Riley's origin, identity, and exploits have eluded researchers and intelligence agencies for more than a century. Riley himself told several versions of his background to confuse and mislead investigators. At different times in his life, he claimed to be the son of an Irish merchant seaman, an Irish clergyman, and an aristocratic landowner connected to the court of Emperor Alexander III of Russia. According to a Soviet secret police dossier compiled in 1925, he was perhaps born as Zygmunt Markovich Rosenblum on the 24th of March, 1874 in Odessa, a black seaport of Emperor Alexander II's Russian Empire. His father, Marcus, was a doctor and shipping agent, according to this dossier, while his mother came from an impoverished noble family. Other sources claim that Riley was born Georgi Rosenblum in Odessa on the 24th of March, 1873. In one account, his birth name is given as Solomon Rosenblum and Kursan Gubernia of the Russian Empire, the illegitimate son of Polina and Dr. Mikhail Abramovich Rosenblum, the cousin of Riley's father, Grigory Rosenblum. There is also speculation that he was the son of a merchant marine captain in Polina. Yet another source states that he was born Sigmund Georgievich Rosenblum on the 24th of March, 1874, the only son of Paulina and Gregory Rosenblum, a wealthy Polish-Jewish family with an estate at Bielsk in the Grodno province of Imperial Russia. His father was known locally as George rather than Gregory, since Sigmund's patronymic is Georgievich. 
The family seems to have been well-connected in Polish nationalist circles through Paulina's intimate friendship with Ignacy Jan Paderowski, the Polish statesman who became prime minister of Poland and also Poland's foreign minister in 1919. At any rate, you get the point. The man calling himself Sidney Riley was a shadowy figure who moved across borders effortlessly and made money by working for several different intelligence agencies, selling information, some of it real, some of it false, to the highest bidder. The British used him in Russia, which is why the secret police in Moscow wanted him dead. Back to the article by The Guardian, Boris Goods talked about Operation Trust. Quote, a counterintelligence coup of epic proportions, the 1925 trust operation succeeded in luring back to Russia the man Okpu, the Soviet military intelligence service, ranked as one of its greatest and most formidable enemies, the British spymaster, Sidney Riley. When the equipment was finally ready and the interview began, Gutz explained that he had been born in the Kherson district, the same district as the Russian-born Riley. After his father was arrested for revolutionary activity, he joined Lenin's Bolshevik party and eventually took part in the 1917 revolution and the civil war that followed. Artuzov, head of Okpu's counterintelligence section, was a family friend and had offered Gutz a job as liaison officer to a subordinate, Vladimir Stern. Gutz's original role in the trust deception was as a courier delivering messages and money to Eduard Operput, one of the frontline agents engaged in apprehending Riley. Like many others in the West, Riley was convinced that the Trust was an anti-Bolshevik group and believed Operput to be one of its representatives. It was at Operput's safe house apartment on September 26, 1925 that Riley wrote a postcard to the MI6 station chief Ernest Boyce. Goods recalled that after leaving the building and posting the card, Riley got into a car he thought was taking him to the railway station. Instead, handcuffs were snapped on his wrists and the car sped off to the notorious Lubyanka headquarters of Okpu. At any rate, I think that it's significant that this fake operation happened in Russia, the birthplace of the Potemkin village. By the way, for anyone who might not know, that term, Potemkin village, derives from the Russian statesman Grigory Potemkin, who tried to fool the Tsarina into thinking that the province over which he ruled was filled with happy, prosperous peasants by building fake villages for one of her inspections. This was back in the 1700s. Operation Trust was its 20th century equivalent. So was the modern Q phenomenon in America a descendant of this methodology? Sid, as the namesake of Sidney Riley, do you want to start out? Well, I gotta say, man, if it convinced Sid, Sidney Riley to do that, I mean, the guy was already freaking. I put this. He had a lot of experience and wisdom behind him. You know I mean? <laughs> That's right. Experience. You're you're a descendant of his. You're doing revolutionary perhaps, activity. Perhaps, <laughs> the mysterious Sid. But no, think about it. He was doing the spy game for year he, years. He was an information broker. He went by various identities just to hide the fact, or just to hide the fact that. Maybe he had family. He wanted to hide, keep them safe. Who knows? But basically, it tricked him to freaking reveal reveal himself, which he shouldn't have done. He should have just hidden in the shadows and bide for time. So, what do you think about the uh, the similarities between the uh, the Operation Trust in you know Russia at that time period in the 1920s, and then a hundred years later, it's almost like a, a centennial. You know, um, Q and on. Yeah, many things tend to rhyme like that, especially if they work. What's this, what this is doing is making everyone who would take action wait for the plan. They're going to wait and bide for time because there's secret people working in the government to help us. No, there's not. You are on your own. You and your family are on your own. You, you and your town are on your own. You see what I mean? Yeah, exactly. No one's going to help you. They're going to take more and more freedoms from you. Let me um, continue. I'm going to play this clip for you, Jenny, and I'm going to have you uh, comment okay. on this. This is Lynn Wood talking to uh, General Mike Flynn. 
The QAnon movement really is a movement that spent, spun out of your digital soldiers. I'm tired of these QAnon people attacking maybe, me. Maybe, I don't know that. But yeah, you know, know some of them. I think it's a disinformation campaign. I think it's a disinformation campaign that the CIA created. That's what I believe now. You know, I don't know that for a fact, but that's what I think it is. I think it's a, I think it's a disinformation campaign. It's actually a very interesting article today out that was sent to me. Uh, I'll, I'll send it to you uh, about how the QAnon movement has failed and all that. But I, I, I find it, a to, you know, total nonsense, and and I think it's a disinformation campaign created by the by the left and the and the types of people that can create something like that are the kinds of people that we train. For certain, you know, with certain skills in the CIA, and, yeah. and uh, I'm aware that the so CIA I, does it. I wouldn't be surprised if that's what it was. Yeah. I'm- so that was uh, Mike Flynn, who we're now finding out, by the way, was uh, running Five Eyes, the uh, spy network between the United States, Britain, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. And uh, so he he would have been very much a part of operations like that. So it's interesting that he was kind of putting it off on the CIA, um, even though I don't I don't think he personally did it. I, I think that, you know, it might. Well, let me let me let you I'll defer to you, Jenny. What are your impressions? Well, it's hard, hard to know where to start. I mean, do you want my impressions about General Flynn or on Q? Both. And, I, and I'll preface my remarks by saying that I did hold a Q clearance for several years. And when Q first came on the scene, which I believe was October 27th, uh, 17th, or between the 17th and the 25th, I think, um, 2017, correct? Sounds good. Sometime around the same time as the Las Vegas shooting, the massive shooting that happened. Interesting. I never made that connection. Yeah. Yeah. The MGM Grand uh, Country Music, or some, I think it was Country Music concert that had a lot of conservative Trump supporters at it. And there were um, multiple accounts and multiple recordings of many, many different guns being shot from different angles and at different rhythms, different types of guns. And uh, the whole hocus pocus that they put out about this one guy being on the 32nd floor of the MGM Grand and knocking out a window so he could shoot his uh, 50 caliber or whatever. Oh, that might have been part of it, but that wasn't all of it. And so that that was it. Uh, right after that happened was when Q hit the scene. And when it first came on, I was, you know, people were saying the Q clearance patriot. And I was like, you know, a Q clearance. I mean, there's 800,000 people in this country that have Q clearances. So I didn't find that to be all that remarkable. And I didn't I didn't really necessarily think that that was anything special. You know, and and everybody's making, oh, that's top secret clearance. And it's like, yeah, it is. But there's a thing called need to know. And we don't know what this dude knows or who mm-hmm. or whether it's a group or not. Dennis, you want to jump in here? Uh, QAnon to me has been a diversionary curiosity that I've paid very little attention to. Maybe Michael Flynn is correct. He could be. Um, but from the outside looking in, and here's the problem, again, with uh, these operations from the point of view of citizens of a republic you know now i'll just take myself out of uh, out of my job and say i'm a citizen of the republic outside looking in i don't know what i can trust with regard to this out with regard to this i don't know if i can trust michael flynn because michael flynn has been accused of being cute 
Chapter 2 Speculation Under Obama, there was uh, his uh, deputy national security advisor, Ben Rhodes, and he was trying to sell the Iran nuclear deal. And Ben Rhodes was a novelist. Uh, he, he wrote thrillers. And so he started telling, like, the, uh, the, the press that, you know, we have to back Obama's, you know, uh, nuclear deal with, with Iran because there are good mullahs and bad mullahs and the good mullahs are on our side and we have to give the good mullahs, like, support and money and all this. And then later on, he admitted he had made the whole thing up. And he said, quote, all these newspapers used to have foreign bureaus. Now they don't. They call us to explain to them what's happening in Moscow or Cairo. Most of the outlets are reporting on world events from Washington. The average reporter we talk to is 27 years old, and their only reporting experience consists of being around political campaigns. That's a sea change. They literally know nothing. And so, you know, he's, he's basically like laughing at it. He's like, you know, these are idiots. These are morons. And I can tell them anything that I want, and they'll print it as if it's true, as if it's gospel. And they don't even fact check me. They just hand in a press release, you know, as if, as if the press release, well, I, I fact checked it. Did you? Yeah, here, he gave me a press release. <laughs> there it is. It matches the press, you know. Um, and, uh, but, but nevertheless, this reminded me of Operation Trust, the, the concept as well of of the uh, these good guys behind the scenes and we've got to help the good guys behind the scenes, you know and you, so you saw like a, a glimmer of what would later become q and i kind of wanted to get your your take on that well i you know there's a lot to go there's a lot going on there both historically and uh as it relates to what may potentially be happening today and uh, there's many different levels of these things but if you take go back to the early Bolshevik period, the early days of the Soviet Union, the construction of that following uh, the rise of Lenin and whatnot, uh, there there were activities anti-Bolshevik in nature taking place both in Europe generally and within Russia in particular. And part of the way in which the Bolsheviks wanted to solidify their 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 hold on power and to create the dictatorship they were seeking was through deception. And uh, there was the deception in the larger sense of the new economic policy uh, that made Lenin look like, uh, you know, a free market guy for a while. Uh, that was false and obviously, you know, was used to, you know, prop things up for a time. But Operation Trust was sort of an adjunct to that. And it was on, the, on a smaller scale, the same type, type of deception. And it was to create uh, a, a false organization that would allow the Bolsheviks to really understand who their so-called enemies were and neutralize them. So taking that forward to today, and 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 people have have made the comparison to, you know, the QAnon thing that was going on uh, during the President Trump period. Uh, you know, was that the same type of thing? Was that was QAnon um, a movement created by? Uh, a counterintelligence apparatus in order to neutralize uh, certain parts of the American population. I don't think the comparison is one-to-one. I don't think it's exactly the same thing. Um, but as, as usual, having better understanding of history and you know, things that took place historically can allow you to critically think more capably about what you see happening around you today. So people who, aren't, who weren't familiar with Operation Trust or The Trust, uh, may not have had a great grasp of the fact that there are counterintelligence operations that have happened historically and shouldn't be a surprise if they happen uh, in the present day. Yeah, well, I was talking to Jason Reza Giorgiani, and uh, he was one of the founders of the alt-right with Richard Spencer. And I was asking him about that, and uh, we had a great telephone conversation, and he said that that was all a counterintelligence operation. 
um, he said that he was reached out to. He, he'd written a book called Iranian Leviathan. And um, Giorgiani is of Iranian extraction, and he was involved with the Iranian Renaissance and all this kind of stuff. And so he wrote this book on, you know, his, his ancestral homeland, Iran. And so anyway, so he gets re- a, a guy in England reaches out to him and says, oh, I'm a real big fan of your book. Um, you know, I, I like your ideas on, on policy and, and this, that and the other. And uh, he was like, you know, I'd like to, to talk more with you about this. And uh, later on, he finds out that this guy in England uh, is part of a, um, a spinoff of, of Blackwater. The Blackwater used to have the mercenary organization used to have a uh, an intelligence unit. And then when Bra- Blackwater, um, you know, rebranded as XE, I think is the, is the name of it now, very similar to uh, President Xi in China, <laughs> XE instead of XI. Um, that that intelligence apparatus spun off and it became a, a private intelligence firm calling itself Jellyfish. And he didn't know this at the time. Giorgiani at first thought that this was a, a crank. He, you know, he was just a, a, you know, possibly a fan, but I don't know anything about this guy. And so later on, he finds out that he is the, the head guy um, and he's very highly placed and very, very well connected. And so he starts, you know, talking to Giorgiani and saying, you know, we're thinking of doing things, you know, uh, in in Iran. We're thinking of destabilizing certain countries and, and their oil, you know, both in Venezuela and, you know, in, in Iran and all these places. And he was like, you know, we would love for you to do propaganda, like pro-Western propaganda in Iran. And um, and that's what his entree was. His He, he kind of held out, dangled this carrot of, you know, doing pro-American, pro, because he knows that the Iranian populace is very pro-Western and has always been very pro-Western. And so he wanted to, you know, he was like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll participate in that. You know, I'll give reasons for why, you know, it would be good to integrate with the West culturally and historically and all these things. And um, so the guy um, said that he wanted uh, access to uh, Bannon, Steve Bannon. And he said, Steve Bannon is close to Trump and Trump is going to be the next president. And he said this before the election, mind you. Um, and so anyway, so the guy, the, the guy in England at Jellyfish, turns out that Jellyfish is a cutout of MI6. And uh, so MI6 is related. So anyway, so so he gets kind of sucked into this and they're like, well, how, how do how do you get close to Steve Bannon? Because we want to influence Trump on Iranian policy. And so he said, so Steve Bannon is a populist. Um, I want you to get in touch with this guy named Richard Spencer, uh, who's at the National Policy Institute. And I want you to create an ecosystem like a, a, a conservative slash right wing ecosystem to get close to Steve Bannon, something that Steve Bannon would be possibly interested in. So I want you to create um, a nexus between Arctos Publishing, uh, Richard Spencer's NPI. And there was a third organization, I can't remember, that, that he wanted to, to loop in as well. Um, oh, Red Ice uh, Media, Red Ice Media. And uh, and he said, OK, so I want you to create like a blanket kind of umbrella organization and you'll call it the alt-right. And, um, you know, and so so Giorgiani, you know, kind of goes into that and, and he's, you know, okay with talking about Iranian culture, you know, hence Aryan culture, you know, and uh, and, and talking about that in, in those terms and very academic, you know, kind of very respectful and respectable terms. Um, and then Richard Spencer goes off the deep end and kind of, you know, goes into like white nationalism. <laughs> Giorgiani is discredited. And then the, the guy at Jellyfish cuts ties when, when Richard Spencer becomes a loose cannon and goes on CNN and, you know, starts making a spectacle out of himself. But it was just very interesting to me that that whole alt-right thing, you know, that a lot of people thought was organic or thought was real or thought, you know, 
um, that that was a creation of an, basically of an intelligence agency, you know, um, for very different reasons <laughs> than what the people who were following it thought. You know, the people who were following it might have thought, hey, this is, you know, a, a resurgence of, you know, white people and you know, white people defending their own interests and stuff like that. Um, and then it turns out, no, it was actually about Iranian oil. <laughs> it, was, it was about an oil, you know, like an oil company. Like um, Blackwater started as a, basically in oil. Their term, their name Blackwater came from oil spilled in the water, you know, which they called oh. Black water, and I didn't know that till talking to Giorgiani. But yeah, this was all about like you know energy cartels, you know that that are paying intelligence agencies, you know, or spinoffs of intelligence agencies, and creating these movements, these fake grassroots grassroots movements. And uh, so that that in itself was interesting to me in terms of Operation Trust. These things are still happening. Operations like that are still going on. You know, I've got two clips by a guy named uh, David Goldberg who died three months before COVID. And uh, he was a whistleblower and his death was allegedly under suspicious circumstances, but he was trying to allegedly ostensibly leak information to the public. So let me play the clip. The main part that you really need to know, though, is they have a plan for all of this. So I'm going to talk about that now. There is discussion within these documents uh, years ago to ban the YouTube channels, to shut it down, all of that. But they changed course. They made a decision to do something completely different. And they decided instead of censoring everything to fund and promote gatekeeper channels, shield channels, to simply gather and collect all the open-minded people who are looking at the issue. And they did shut down some of the legitimate channels, and that has actually happened. If you're following some of that, you are aware that there have been channels that have been shut down, almost completely eliminated. Some of those channels were not a part of the original gatekeeper channels. They have no connection. They are truth-telling channels. Some of those they've eliminated that they felt were a threat or that might be calling out the gatekeeper channels. Now, I'm going to talk about what is the purpose of the whole operation. And the purpose of this is to, to put out truthful channels, to attract people to them. They call it tag, track, and ID. It is a term used throughout the documents, TTID. It's something you want to remember. This is very uh, common throughout these documents. They refer to it all the time. So what does that tell you? They want to tag they want to track you, and they want to identify who you are. If you are watching these channels, if you are informed, if you are awake on these issues, they want to tag you, they want to track you, and they want to know exactly who you are. They want to know, and uh, it talks about the uh, tracking people's IP addresses through YouTube. They have access to YouTube. They do know who you are. So this is discussed a lot in the documents I'm just looking through right now. And there are two projects, and it's very important to, to li listen to this. Project Pogo is one of them, and Project Zypher. I will spell that one. Z-Y-P-H-R. Project Pogo and Project Zypher are... The two projects that the classified documents are referring to, and each has a different role. Project Pogo is about the YouTube gatekeepers. 
how they are all agents. They are all paid to put out truthful information so that they can tag, track, and ID the people that are watching the videos and giving them likes and giving them comments. They're tracking all of it. Project Zypher is a different project, and that's what I'll talk about in a bit. That is the second stage here. That is coming up. And that is the extermination. They're going to exterminate these people. Okay, so that was uh, David Goldberg, um, who himself might be a disinformation agent. We don't know. Um, we do, however, know that he really did die three months uh, before COVID. And so he said in, uh, you know, um, after he was releasing these, uh, these ostensible documents, um, that they were planning on identifying dissidents, people who might resist uh, the coming kind of coup, the coming technocracy takeover. And it was very important to I- I- identify them. Um, but anyway, uh, Sid, uh, I'm going to start with you. What, what are your thoughts on uh, David Goldberg? Uh, you always have to take a, like a grain of salt with information like this, especially if it's leaked. I mean, he died, but still. You know what I mean? They don't tell everyone everything. Yeah, exactly. But what he did, what he is saying is truthful. Like, think about it like this, right? If you want to see what how everyone's going to react, you stress them out. You put out. You make. You have to put like you have to shape the reality to where they're going to be angry. They're going to be freaking agitated all the time. You're going to see which way they lean. You're going to see how they react, what they're thinking. And you can already do this by just tracing their IP, seeing what Internet sites they go to and things along those lines. So they already have the information. Now, they're trying to plot out who's actually going to resist. They know that there's going to be people who protest verbally and who talk a lot of who talk a lot of shit, but uh, my bad, my bad, but who talk a lot, but they're looking for the ones who will do action. That's what matters. Words mean nothing unless action is taken, taken with them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Now, there are various a... levels of action. Exactly. Know, and they, have, they have to have thresholds for, you know, because they have limited resources on, you know, even though they seem unlimited. So they're going to have to go after the most militant or exactly. active. People. And that's what that's what they're doing. They're seeing who's actually going to do something, who's most likely to like they probably put on a scale, right? They're like, OK, yeah. scale one. They're going to these are the ones we got to take out first scale. So I think two, they're watching Facebook most of all. Well, Facebook, social media, anything with the Internet connection that that's based in the U.S. or any other country like in NATO, even Russia, I don't really trust or any of them. No, you can't. But you how about this? You have to kind of like be a ghost online. You, I mean, I would say use a VPN, but even then, some of them are compromised. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, you can set up your own, but a lot of people don't want to do that. So it's either you're a part of the online community or you get off. You know what I mean? And you have to think about yourself. Okay, how much information have I put out? And how high am I on that tier list? How? And then you, if you're high up on the tier list, you have to think about how much time do you have? Honestly. These things are closing down. You have to then you have to kind of realize, okay, how do I get out of here or how do I survive? There's a flip side to that. And, you know, I'm sure the number of people they have, depending on their thresholds, the number Mm -hmm. of people they have, it's in the millions. And so they really have to come up with criteria 
for the, I guess, the worst threat, you know, the most active threat. And different people have different ways of fighting. You know, I've made some decisions on how I'm going to fight, and they don't have anything to do with getting a gun or doing blowing stuff up. Or for me, it's putting out information, you know, doing research that most people don't want to do or can't do, and then publicizing it to let people know, you know, various scientific aspects of what exactly. we see going on. Well, I wanted to I wanted to hit that the second clip by Goldberg because it gets to what Jenny said just a minute ago. You mentioned that there's got to be millions of people and this has got to be, you know, a resource drain on them. So they've got to allocate resources wisely. And so um, he, he touches on that. So let me play the clip one moment. They're going to exterminate these people, whether it is tag them for anti-Semitic speech charge them with crimes, eliminate them completely. And this is where I'll talk about in the documents where they talk about guillotines, viral attacks targeted, how they're going to eliminate these people without too much suspicion, without too many people noticing. But here's the problem. As I read the documents, I can see I have documents from four years ago. I have documents from two years ago. And then I have documents from three months ago. So there's a progression in the timeline as the projects change. And Project Zypher has changed. In the beginning, they have been talking, they were talking a lot about, okay, we are going to infect these people with a virus that uh, imitates the flu virus. They're going to eliminate them in various ways that would not be suspicious. In the, in the documents I have now from three months ago, they are saying the amount of people they have to eliminate is too large. It is too many. We are talking about millions of Americans. And this is where we see their plans are changing. And they are going to initiate something that is devastating and that is extremely frightening. So in the beginning, he said that, um, like the CIA had done studies and they said that it requires about 3.5% of the population to be active for any revolution to happen. And that, ha that was true of the American revolution. That's true of most revolutions around the world, just 3.5%. So, uh, Goldberg had said that the people who they considered conscious were originally about 1% of the population, 1.7%. And so they were looking at the 3.5%, uh, metric with terror. And then when they started doing the data, analytics, they were like, oh, my God, it's up to 17 percent of the populace knows what's going on. And so he said at that point, he said if it was down to 1.7 percent, they could roll out trucks like Eastern European style, arrest people, take them to concentration camps if it's 1.7 percent. When it's 17 percent, there's so many millions of people that you can no longer hide it like that. So you're going to have to hide it in a, in a different way. And he said that's when they started talking about viruses, targeted viral, targeted viral attacks. They're going to lock down the society and they're going to they're going to basically, you know, do bio weapons on people as a form of plausible deniability. And um, and so what what gives this uh, kind of force, uh, you know, the force of conviction is the fact that he said this three months before COVID, you know, so so e either he's, you know, ha has incredible precognitive abilities or 
he may have actually been, you know, looking at documents, you know, or is himself a disinformation agent who is giving real information to to garner credibility. But, you know, it it is very interesting to me that the narrative that he laid out, that they were panicking, that the, the, the size, as Ginny pointed out, of the population that they felt like they had to neutralize was so large that they had to go to a viral method. You know, whether it's fake or not, I think Hugh actually had a lot to do with that mobilization. You know, at whether, you know, people want to trust the plan or not, and I never did, but, you know, it, it garnered an awful lot of support for Trump. And a lot of people thought Trump was either uh, behind it or part of it, aligned with it in some way. And that loyalty that was excited, it drew, it drew a lot of people in and woke them up. And especially watching the way Trump was treated all four years, that was another thing that people could not believe how how awful it was for four years for him. Yeah, unprecedented. I mean, we couldn't imagine. I mean, people who grew up in the 70s or 80s or 60s or 50s, you know, any any time before the 21st century, even in the early 21st century, it would be unthinkable for, the, for you know, a, a media organization to blacklist George W. Bush or Eisenhower or Kent. That wouldn't have right. happened. And the fact that they were so contemptuously, you know, Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that, you know, say, oh, well, you know, we know better than the president and uh, we have to protect you from your own president. You know, we have to protect the people from their own elected representatives. You know, I mean, it was just it was it was it was a sea change in seeing how, you know, the, the legitimate government was being delegitimized by these globalist organizations. You know, like, for instance, uh, Twitter, Jack Dorsey just stepped down. And yeah. uh, one of the people That's because of the Maxwell trial. Yeah, pro- probably. I'm yep. sure. And but but one of the the uh, Laura Loomer, she made the point. She was like looking at all these Indians, Indian nationals who are in charge of Google, who are now in charge of Twitter, yeah. who are in charge of all these places. And they don't have a heritage of freedom or rule of law. They don't have a right. heritage. They, they have like, for instance, I was reading an article by the India Times by an Indian journalist. And it was for an Indian audience in India, the India Times. And he wrote this article about the the end, uh, endemic uh you know, impulse to cheat and lie on SAT scores and, and, and college entrance exams and stuff like that, 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 you know, were plaguing India. And he said that, you know, I put this down to India's culture of dissimulation, you know, where, where Indians actually train their children how to lie. And he profiled like a father who beamed with joy when his son came home as an eight-year-old telling him of his first scam. And so, you know, Western European Protestants don't understand this. They think, oh, well, they're just Protestants from Asia. You know, they, they act yeah, like us. They have no, our no. culture. And so you see uh, Pinchar Sundai or whatever he was lying before Congress. I mean, straight up, you yeah. know, un- unambiguously lying because in his yep. culture, that's expected. It's normal. And, and, and he's not the one who stigmatized. If you believed him, you're stigmatized because you were the gullible dupe. You were the fool. And so, so all of a sudden, all of these media companies are being headed up with these the people with a culture of lying. You know, and and so Laura Loomer made that point. She was like, you know, why is it Russia collusion manipulating the election when you have like all these Indian nationals? She was like, why isn't that collusion? Why isn't that foreign collusion? You know, like manipulating our elections openly like that lady who was caught by um, uh, Project Veritas and she was an Irish woman in uh, in Ireland. And she was pretending to be an Indian. Well, no, 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 not that one. But uh, the this was uh, a couple of years ago. And she was saying that, of course, we have to manipulate the election and we have to, you know, deplatform these conservatives because we can't allow Trump, you know, to to get reelected. This is something we can't allow. She was saying this is a foreign national openly talking about manipulating our elections. Where's the congressional hearing? Where, where, where are the sanctions? Where are the antitrust law? You know what I mean? The, the, you have you have clear cut, unambiguous foreign meddling in our elections, but because they're oh, not absolutely. Russians, it's not supposed to matter. Right. 
they're all Chinese now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're, exactly. Yep. They're, they're Israelis, Chinese, and Indians, you know, are the, are yeah. the, the three top ones, the tech, you know, people. Um, but we're not allowed, you know, we're, we're, like that's supposed to be good collusion. You know, that's that's good interference yeah, in our election. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to yeah, ask. And so now to, the Democrats want all the people coming over the border, whether they be from Nigeria or Botswana or, or Haiti, they're coming up through the southern border and they're going to get to vote. Honestly, man, freaking my I remember freaking um, a good way to deal with this, man. I mean, it's not like a lot of women and children. It's like, oh, wait, can you all hear me? Military age men. Yes, exactly. So a good a good solution to this is take a sniper rifle. Sit. I, I mean, I'm not lots and lots lot, of cases of bullets. No, 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 no. <laughs> just one. Just one aimed at a kneecap. No one's going to want to come over here if someone keeps getting their kneecap. And then you take them, take them to the hospital, fix them up. But they're going to have that fear. And that's yeah. what you want. Right. You either want respect or you want fear. Fear is better most times. Yeah, it's you know Machiavelli. I mean? Yeah, it's better to be feared than to be loved. Um, you know, as a, as a <laughs> leadership, a governance model. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap it up here, and I'm gonna ask. I'm gonna start with Sid. So Sid, what is your final conclusion on the Operation Trust QAnon phenomenon? I believe they're very they're very very much linked, and I would recommend people to start looking into these things. Those who do not study the history of the world are doomed to repeat it. There are cycles to this. So if you don't study, how do I put this? We are now going through what the Russians did right after the fall of the Tsar. And this is no different. This is so complex that it's mind boggling. You know what I mean? I mean, it is so utterly complex that a lot of people who are doing this stuff don't even know they're just a pawn, you know? That's so sad. So, but but one of the things too, I mean, you see not just the Q thing being recycled, but you see the same methodology of destabilization. Like when I, I did a presentation on Bella Dodd, and she was the the ex communist from the 1920s, and she wrote a book in the 1950s, and she had been a communist for many decades, and uh, she she turned on them, and she you know was disillusioned. She realized that it was a psyop, that it was being run by the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and and the Harrimans, and so yeah, you know, and um and so she was like, you know, this isn't to help the working man at all. You know, this is a scam. This is a con. So she turns on them. But what was interesting about her book, School of Darkness, is that she, you see 100 years ago, almost exactly 100 years ago, and um, she has like uh, quotes. Let me see if I can let me see if I can find one of the quotes. Um, she, she One of the quotes is, the, the call was a socialist publication. That paper gave a new turn to my thinking. I, I sought other copies. I felt my heart beat with excitement as I read the articles on social justice. So you see that term social justice being rolled back out. And then there's another one. I ran into conflict after conflict with Thompson. He was uh, Moscow trained, morose and unstable. He surrounded himself with strong arm men and packed the state board meetings with those who flattered him and voted his way. He moved in to swiss swiftly destroy anyone who thwarted him. He and Ben Davis tried to get me to prefer charges against Eugene Connolly, a city councilman and secretary of the American Labor Party on the grounds of white chauvinism. When I protested that I had never seen the slightest evidence of white chauvinism, they looked at me with disgust. So once again, and so social justice oh, is being, and now white supremacy, except it used to be called white chauvinism. And then there's another yeah. thing. 
Since, let's see, uh, since 1932, the Communist Party had publicized itself as the leading opponent of fascism. It had used the emotional appeal of anti-fascism to bring many people to the acceptance of communism by posing communism and fascism as alternatives. Its propaganda machine ground out an endless stream of words, pictures, and cartoons. It played on intellectual, humanitarian, racial, and religious sensibilities until it succeeded to an amazing degree in conditioning the, uh, America to recoil at the word fascist, even when people did not know its meaning. So we're seeing that, too. Oh, I, I get to beat you up. Why? You're a fascist. And she talked about that, too. The goon squads who would go be beat people up, innocent people, and then retroactively term them as fascist. And then, oh, yeah. see, I'm, a, I'm allowed to beat you up now. You're a fascist. And I'm an anti-fascist, even though right. they're, they're the goon squads beating people up. Anti-fascist. Yeah, yeah. And they're, they're going to be the ones who are executed first. I mean, like when if you read uh, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution by Anthony Sutton, and he talks about this, he was at the Hoover Institute and he did excellent, excellent excellent, irrefutable, documented work on this subject. And so basically, um, as Bella Dodd found out, uh, Wall Street coordinated the Russian Revolution, just as they had coordinated the Mexican Revolution, the Panama Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, you know, back in 1911, um, and all out of the same building, you know, all out of the same building on Broadway, um, phenomenally. And it was also the same building that after the Russian Revolution happened that they went and brought their their first Soviet embassy, was in the same up the hall from the people who planned it. Um, so very inorganic. And so they had uh, this, this guy named Olaf Ashberg, and Olaf Ashberg was called the Bolshevik banker, and he was in Sweden. And so what they basically did was they strip mine, they murdered the czar, and they strip mined, you know, all the wealth out of Russia. And the people, the oligarchs who, who masterminded this, they got no bid contracts out of Russia and they got cheap Russian, you know, wheat, cheap Russian oil, cheap Russian minerals, you know, no bid contracts because they put in their hitmen. And so those hitmen were Trotsky and Lenin. And so they specifically even said they did not want ethnic Russians ruling over Russia because they might care about Russia. They might care about the Russian exactly. people. And so they wanted non-Russian, ethnic non-Russians ruling over Russia who would use these people as toilet paper. And, uh, and so they they, they, and they told them that the initial pitch was, oh, we're going to kill the, the middle class. We're going to kill the aristocrats. We're going to kill the czar. And all this wealth is going to go to you. No, just kidding. It's going into the bank in Sweden by Olaf Ashberg. And all those Fabergé eggs and all that gold bullion is coming to Wall Street. You know, you're getting none of it. You're, and all of your natural resources, they're ours now. And so they, they actually fought. There were two nationalists. There was Kerensky, who initially was in charge, and there was a General Kolchak, who was controlling at his height, I think, three-fourths of Russia. And they said, we want neither of these men in charge because they're nationalists. They would protect Russia. They would protect the Russian people. We don't want that. We want internationalists in there. And so get in Trotsky, get in Lenin, and we can, we can rely on these men to mass murder the populace, impoverish them, transfer their wealth to us. And so if you think about that, as Sid said, if, if they're following that template— what we're watching is the first stage of eluding a strip mining operation in the United States as they strip mine you know, trillions of dollars out and it's going to China. It's going to, to create the global technocracy. And so they have to hold the population down and they need useful idiots to hold, you know, the, the people who might fight this down. And that's what this is all about. So, so Ginny, what's your uh, your final uh, you know, summation? Chapter three. Conclusion. Well, I guess, um, well, he, you had me on this train of thought, and I just want to say that I think that's what the Biden administration is doing right now. They're plugging, I, I would say every single federal agency is now being owned and operated by the Chinese through proxies that have been put in place by the Biden administration. 
and and this is this started long, even before Trump was in office. Uh, it wasn't the Biden administration. It was the O Biden administration putting people in places that uh, you know you don't think much about. You know the FDA or um, you know uh, OSHA or any of those things. Why would it seem important to have? non-nationalists in places like that and then you soon when when stuff the when the crap really hits the fan that's when you find out how important those positions are and that's when you find out that they're being run by communists well somebody made the point too that uh, all the people that were put in these cabinet positions are people who are overseeing seemingly the destruction of those agencies and so you have Pete yeah. Buttigieg who's put into you know uh you know like he's doing the uh, the supply chains and stuff like that you know and uh you know and his his whole job is to destroy it or the person who's in charge of the Department of Energy and their whole purpose is to not give licenses Absolutely. or permits to destroy the yeah. American you know energy Absolutely. sector and so every one of these people who are put in charge of all these cabinet positions they're there to sabotage those those aspects of our economy Economy and our, our government, you know, making us dysfunctional so that, you know, other powers can easily take us over because we're, you know, we've been held down. We've, we're, we're Gulliver, who's been tied down by the Lilliputians. Yeah. Well, I, I have one final thing to say about the Q phenomenon. And that is, I think you have there, there, when it first came in, I was really paying attention to it because it was obvious that it was becoming quite a uh, manipulative factor in the, the affections and, and the feeling, the patriotic feelings um, of the general populace, uh, especially, you know, of those who voted for Trump. But even more than that, there were people that are kind of on the fence that started falling for it and rallying around the flag and becoming more obvious in their patriotism. And so I think there it had some um, unintended consequences that actually worked counter to possibly to the goals of the people that have propagated it over time it accidentally woke the sleeping giant and this particular batch of people uh, are very good with guns and so they've created quite a schism in our society and we're about to see what happens next that's why they're being very careful about this i mean look at the australians they gave away all their guns back in what the 90s do you remember yeah. Yeah, they give away all their guns, and now look at them. Exactly. New dictatorship. Yeah, they're, they're having a fight with uh, pitchforks and torches. Yep. But um, I would also say this. I mean, ditch the smartphones. Yep, get, I don't have one. Ditch, yeah, ditch the smartphones, ditch social media. Just yeah. get off their radar. Get back, get back into the real environment. Take over the real yeah. environment. Let them have the ghost world. Let them have the metaverse. If you but if we metaverse. take over the real <laughs> environment, they're screwed. But, yeah. but it's like this. It's... They're afraid of the unseen. That's what they don't want to tell you. They're they're afraid of people who don't show up on the radar, who they can't tell, well, this is so-and-so, or they're going to be here at this time. If you're a ghost to them, they're, you're, going to scare, you're going to scare the shit out of them if you're a ghost, if you're off, if you're offline, you know? Yeah, I'm sure that, well, I have kind of sacrificed that. I did that for years, Sid, and I finally decided to draw my line in the sand, and that is I'm, I'm coming out with information. You know, and I've got a little I do a one hour segment every Wednesday on the Zublik channel. And it, it's I'm the only person out there who's kind of doing a purview of the science for people that are too intimidated, don't have the confidence or the voc vocabulary to read for understanding with highly technical stuff. And so I kind of feel it's my service to the movement. But I'm also really out there now. Yeah, and well, I figured, well yeah. 
you know, no, I mean, so old, it almost doesn't matter, you know? No, that's, that's awesome. That's exactly like me and my boy were reading a history of the United States by Charles Beard and he's a historian from 1920. And so it's a real history book, you know, so we're reading pre-World War II real history before they got rid of it and replaced it with social studies. And uh, so, you know, we're reading this coherent timeline, cause and effect, and you can see the unfolding. And so one of the things that the founding fathers did was uh, right from the outset, they said, you know, that we have to have polemics. We have to have, you know, our, our we have to change the spirit of the people. Right. And so that was their way of saying propaganda. They were doing pro republic propaganda because they knew that they had to change the people's mindset from obeying swishy British monarchs, you know. Right. And and, and the Tories in America at the time, they were like looking down at the Continental Congress. They're like, oh, look at them. It's a it's a, a parliament of working men, people who are law- Most of them are lawyers. Look at them. They're they're not aristocrats. These are people who have to work for a living, you know, and, and these are people yeah. who are straight and sleep with women. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, and so the people were trained to defer to these 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 inbred, you know, degenerates, you know, like hello, you're going to do what I say, you know, like, and yeah. that was, and they would just mindlessly, slavishly yeah, well, obey we that them person from behind the trees. <laughs> yeah, and so that was what they said. They said we had Love to change the color of blood on blue satin. Exactly. So we had to change the spirit of the people. We had to train them to be more respectful of working men. We had to train them to say no, a middle class society, like Aristotle said, republics are fundamentally middle-class societies don't like get off your knees that's one of the keys to the industriousness of this nation that made it a world leader innovation and industriousness yeah exactly like a middle class like a, a a country of workers we were an anomaly and so they're trying to reverse that anomaly and they're doing doing a hell of a good job because they've yeah. started changing the spirit of the people they changed yeah. us from an active populace which a republic a requires sheeple. to a passive populace which a despotism requires like according to john stuart mill he said a, 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 in a despotism you need the people to be passive and he said one yeah. of the one of the traits of a passive population he said and this was 1861 and he said wow. an active population um if you see something wrong with yourself, you, you're like, oh, I should change that. He said, a passive population, if you see something wrong with yourself, you blame someone else. And so when you look at grievance culture, oh, I failed because a, a man did this to me in the gender pay gap, or I failed because the whitey did this to you. Know, what they're being trained to be is passive. They're being trained to not have power, to, to not have independence, to not have any, you know, you know, any self-determination. There is a subtle change we could introduce there because there everybody gets a, uh, what is it? Everybody gets a trophy culture. And yeah, that's exactly. where these people come from. And and so when they start saying it's the so-and-so's fault and so-and-so's fault, you know, it, it, there are some subtle things we could do where it's like, well, yeah, you, well, you can, you know, blame the person who gave you the trophy. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, exactly. Know? You can't do the job. Dennis, um, can you give me your your conclusion? Like as we as we go into that conclusion, what would be your conclusion on the uh, the concept of Operation Trust and QAnon? Well, yeah. My conclusion about Operation Trust and QAnon is that uh, I think that, you know, Operation Trust is something that happened in the historical record. I do think it's true. If you don't know what's happened before, you're not going to recognize the similar types of things that can happen or can be done in the future. Uh, But if you do know what's happened before, you can recognize those things and you can work uh, accordingly with uh, your family, friends, neighbors, and your community to make sure the impacts are lessened or headed off entirely. Uh, Lack of perspective really results in in challenges to the community at large or the nation as a whole. And when it's a republic, like the American Republic, citizenship is key to maintaining the integrity of that republic and the freedom of all of all of us, all of all of our freedoms. So 
access to key information is necessary. That key information includes historical perspective, and that's what Operation Trust is for us today. And with that, I'm going to wrap it up, and I'm going to thank our panel, Jenny Silcox, The Mysterious Sid, and Dennis Barrett. And as for me, I am Daniel Natal, and I will see you next time on Under the Iceberg. 